you may not be a, a, a card-carrying United Methodist. Maybe you didn't grow up in the United Methodist Church. Maybe you never set foot in one before you came to Lover's Lane. Out of curiosity, how many of us, Lover's Lane is your first United Methodist Church you've ever participated in? Wonderful. So good number, good number in the room. So um, this may be a topic that you're thinking like, why would I care about this? But it's important because um, our denomination, like other denominations in America specifically in the last 15 years or so, has wrestled, uh, continues to wrestle uh, with issues surrounding our human sexuality and how that relates to marriage and ordination in the church. So the United Methodist Church, since the uh, early 70s, we, we've had language in our book of discipline, our official book of laws, the church, um, that, that has a phrase that is hurtful to many. And it says, homosexuality or homosexual practice is incompatible with Christian teaching. And that language has led us to um, not allow same-sex weddings in our churches, and it has also led us to not allow uh, persons who are homosexual to be ordained in the United Methodist Church. Now, obviously, the second those words went in, what do we start doing? Fighting about it, right? Um, those words went in the book, and immediately we were debating over whether they should still be in there. So we've had this debate for 40 years, and we're not the only church that's done that. Other denominations have as well. The Episcopal Church did that, and they split. Presbyterian Church did that, and they split. United Methodist Church, we're in the middle of it, and we're trying to figure out if we're going to split. And in a year's time, uh, in February of 2019, we're going to have a gathering called a general conference, and there's going to be delegates from around the world representing United Methodist churches. They're going to get together, and they are going to decide what we're going to do about this. They're, they're, they're going to vote on the, a proposition put together by a team called the Commission on the Way Forward by the Council of Bishops. Isn't that fun and bureaucratic? So it's an important decision because what they decide there could change the way that ministry and church looks like even here at Lover's Lane. Um, the United Methodist Church could look different, could practice different, could uh, contain different churches in a year's time, two years' time, five years' time. Uh, but what happens next year in February 2019 is going to resonate throughout our country and throughout our world in United Methodist churches. And so we wanted to spearhead a conversation here in this local church because uh, one thing churches love to do when they know that there is a big change coming and they're not sure what it looks like, what do we love to do? Stick our head in the sand like a daggum ostrich, right? And, and that's what a lot of churches, unfortunately, and they, they're going to lead the way they need to. A lot of churches don't want to talk about this. A lot of churches don't want to talk about these changes because the honest truth is I can't tell you what's going to happen in a year. I really can't. I can't tell you if the discipline is going to change. I can't tell you if practices at our local churches will change. I can't tell you if it's not going to change. I can't tell you if there's going to be a split, if there's not going to be a split, if some splits are going to happen, if we're going to... I can't tell you any of that. I don't know. But it's important that we talk about these things so that we're not surprised in February of 2019. Amen? The one thing I hate more than change is being blindsided. How about you? Anybody? Anybody hate being blindsided? So we're talking about these things. We're talking about this in, in a, in, from a theological perspective because, you know what, a lot of times in the church we argue about things that are kind of, to be honest, and not to make it sound trivial, but they are surface-level issues, and they're symptoms of a deeper foundational problem, yeah? So when we argue about who can get married or who can get ordained, we're not really arguing about that. We're really arguing about how we read Scripture, how we understand God how we understand the church, how we understand who Jesus was. Those are the kinds of things that we're really talking about, but the symptom is who can get married and who can be ordained. Y'all follow me there? So this series, we're going to be talking about the deeper stuff. What is it about our theology that informs a way that we could move forward through this discussion and not reach the same kind of fractured split that we've seen so many other denominations have to suffer through? 
Because the reality is, it might sound good to some in the room this morning for us to say, you know, why, why don't we just go ahead and go our separate ways? That sounds great, it, 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 but we're a part of a larger global denomination. And if we go our separate ways and we split and we, we run apart, then we lose things like the, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, which provides relief efforts around the world, places like Haiti, Places like Tonga, when it got hit by tsunamis, you didn't even know that. Places like, like anywhere that, that has any sort of natural crisis, any, side, any, any sort of situation like that, they're there for years and years after any other organization. Things like UMCOR, those get placed upon the altar and we go, are we ready to sacrifice that in the name of being right today? So there's a group called Uniting Methodists that have, that have gained a movement in the United Methodist Church. The Uniting Methodists say, you know what, we know that there are really, really strong opinions on the far ends of this discussion. There are some people who simply will not be able to participate in the United Methodist Church if nothing changes at all. Uh, and there are, or some people who will not be able to participate if, if inclusion is not the law of the land everywhere, including Africa and Southeast Asia. And then there's some people who say if anything changes, if a single word or comment in that discipline changes, we're out. Now, relatively speaking, those two groups are rather small. And we think that there's a larger group in the middle that says, you know what, I know what God's called me to, and I would like the freedom to be and do what God has called me to today in my ministry. But I also understand that I have sisters and brothers who think differently than I do. And I don't expect the whole world to be where I am at today. And I, I think, and the United Methodists think, that that's a larger group than really has a voice right now. The, the middle is usually quiet, aren't they? The middle's not good about speaking up. <laughs> the middle's usually pretty good about being quiet, going to church, doing their thing. So this sermon series is really an effort for us to give voice to what does it look like for us to uh, be a both-and kind of a church. Not a church that runs from justice, not a church that runs from inclusion, a church that pursues those things, but understands that, that expecting the entire world denomination to get to where we are today, well, that's just going to lead to a fracture. And expecting the entire denomination to be stuck where we are today, that's going to lead to a fracture as well. We've got to find something in between. To help start this conversation, I want to talk about a trip I took to Mississippi to see my family. My mom's side is all from Mississippi. Anybody from Mississippi in the room this morning? Woo! I got one in the back. Thank you very much. Um, I went to see my family in Mississippi, and I got, to, I got to see my Uncle Doug. My Uncle Doug is from Birmingham, Alabama. And he is a couple years away from retirement, works for IBM, and, and uh, he's excited about retirement. He's got a friend who's telling me who gave him a really special gift for Christmas. His friend makes custom guitars for fun. And he gave him a custom-built guitar for Christmas because he knew my Uncle Doug has always wanted to learn how to play guitar, and he's about to be retired, so he's going to have all the time in the world to learn how to play guitar. He's got this powder blue body and these red casino dice knobs on the body, and it was a really cool-looking guitar. And I was talking to him about what it was like learning how to play this guitar. He said, you know, it's been really hard, to be honest. I said, really? And so I, said, I asked him why, and I thought that he might say it's because of all the weird shapes you got to make with your hand to make all the right chords. He said, no, the, the thing that's the hardest about the guitar I've learned is that my fingers hurt. I said, your fingers hurt? He goes, yeah, it is hard to learn how to play, because your fingers press on the strings. Who's learned how to play guitar in the room? You know what I'm talking about, yeah? Yeah. When you first learn, and you got these tender little fingers. You don't realize how tender your fingers are until you learn how to play guitar, do you? And, and those strings are tight, and they're steel, and they hurt, and, and the reason they hurt is because there's tension. Now, this is not a guitar. This is a ukulele. 
right? It's cuter than a guitar, and it sounds cute too, right? Uh, the reason a guitar or a ukulele or any other instrument like this makes sound is why? Is because the, t- the strings are held in a really high tension. And that tension means that it's hard to press down on those strings because they sort of fight back a little bit, don't they? And until you build up the calluses to play guitar, it's going to hurt. And the way it, it makes the sound is you've got on one side of the guitar, you've got what's called a bridge. And the strings are attached in this really fixed position. They don't move from here. This thing is solid and sturdy, and this is their anchor point. They don't move from here. And then they're pulled across the length of the guitar. They're wrapped around these tuning knobs. And here the strings can move. They can move freely up or down, and you can get the right tuning if you want to get it up or you want to get it down. You get the tuning that you want for your song. And then in between, when you press the strings just right and you have them in the perfect tension, what do you get? Music. It's the tension that allows the music to exist, and you, and you press a finger there, and press some fingers there, and there, and there, and before long, you're Jason Mraz, right? So what would happen if I took a pair of scissors and I just cut these strings? There'd be no more tension. This side could stay sturdy, this side could go flinging off any direction it wanted to, and there'd be no more tension, there'd be no more pain, there'd be no more music. You know, a lot of times in Christian faith, we talk about these tensions that we've got, these, these tensions that sound maybe paradoxical. They sound like they don't make sense together. Things like Jesus was fully human and fully divine they just don't make no sense, right? We've got these paradoxes, these tensions like God is eternal, but God also cares about me in my life today. What? That God is the master of the universe, and God also walked and ate and slept with us. What? We've got these tensions in the Christian faith, and you know, some, sometimes when you're outside the Christian faith, it looks like those tensions are, are really in conflict one, with one another, right? We would say that they, they're kind of dissonant. They don't really sound good when you put them together, but as you learn more about the faith, you realize most of the tensions, really the tensions in the Christian faith that we've got, they're complementary tensions. It's like, it's like putting a chord together. You've got these things that, that you wonder, does this really go together? Oh, you know what? It kind of does. And my fear is that we've gotten to a place in our church where there's a lot of people who are ready to cut some strings and say, you know what, this just isn't going to work. You need to go your way, we'll go our way, and we'll just keep doing whatever we want to do. And that sounds nice, but my question is, are we going to lose the music in the process? Because I think there's a gift here in the middle of the tension. And it's hard to see sometimes, and it can be painful to learn, but I believe it's there. And to help us understand why I believe there's music of the tension, I want us to look at two scriptures this morning um, to start with, and then we'll look at a couple more later on. Pastor Kennan talked about these last week. I want to talk about them again and go in a, a slightly different direction with, with some of them. The, the scriptures come from the Old Testament. One is about God instructing the Jewish people to build what's called a tabernacle. It's like a tent. It's this fabric-y thing. And then uh, there's another scripture that's uh, God tells them to build, and, and it's called a temple. It's stone, and it's sturdy, and it doesn't move. It doesn't sway in the wind. And both these scriptures are, are, are scriptures about God telling these people to build two very different structures, but they're more similar than we might think because of one reason. We're going to talk about that. So the first scripture we've got uh, is in Exodus, and to, and to understand why the tabernacle is important, we have to understand who the Israelite people are in this story. The book of Exodus is the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness and trying to find their way to a promised land. 
It's where the word exodus comes from. They're exiting Egypt and entering into this sort of wilderness period, and they're really figuring out who they are for the very first time. So when they're in the wilderness, they are literally homeless. They're nomads. They're wandering all over the desert. It's a harsh place. It's a harsh place to make a life. It's nowhere to plant and call yourself home. And they're wandering for 40 years. 40 years. And God knows that this is going to be a difficult season in their life. He knows that that this is probably going to be one of the most difficult seasons they ever face. And so he asked them to build a structure. But not a permanent structure. Something that's going to give them a home, but a home that can move. And then the second scripture is from 1 Kings, and the Israelites are in a very different place at this point. They've made their way to the promised land. They're laying down roots. But guess what? They, they're going to try and build a nation. And if you're going to be a nation, and you're going to go and meet with nations like Syria and Babylon and Egypt, and you're going to try to negotiate trade, and you're going to try to negotiate borders, and you had better know who you are. And you'd better have a home, and you'd better be clear about what you're about, or else those big boys are going to eat you alive. So they need something very different, and God instructs them to build a very different type of building, this time a temple, this time something that is not going to move. It's going to stay exactly where they put it. Let's read these scriptures this morning. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to take for me an offering from all whose hearts prompt them to give you shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, getting weird, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones and gems to be set in the ephod and for the breastpiece, and have them make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. Accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. The second scripture is like it, but a little bit different. First Kings, beginning in chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Now notice these things are, these are different places, right? One's a tent, one's flowy, you pick it up, you move, you're nomads, you're not going to be there for longer than a day, longer than a week, longer than a month at a time. You don't have time to build anything permanent, so you need something that gets up and goes. And then when you're in Jerusalem and you're home, well, baby, you don't want to get up and go, you want to be there for as long as you can be there, and so you're building stone and pillars and altars and things that are going to be there for a long time, and the temple is there for a long time time, but did you notice the similarity? There's one thing that's mentioned in both scriptures. They're radically different. One's all about these sacrifices they're making. One's all about these commandments they're keeping, and there's one thing that remains the same. Did you hear it? God says, I want you to build this place not because of gems or ram's fur, not because just of statutes and commandments. Why do I want you to build this place? I want you to build it so I can dwell with my children. It's the indwelling of God 
that is the common thread in both these buildings. The buildings themselves are not the important part. One is fabric, one is stone, one's about sacrifice, one's about commitment. They're, they're, they're different in their approach, but the thing that remains the same is God wants to dwell with God's children. Whether God's spirit is where it's always been, or whether God's spirit is on the move, God is always dwelling with God's children. So this morning, I want to lift up this image of a temple and a tabernacle, radically different buildings, but both buildings that God blesses with his spirit. I want us to ask a simple question. How is it possible that God is in both places at once? How can God be a God who's on the move, a God who follows us everywhere, a God who's running all over the wilderness in the places we don't expect, and yet how can God also be so defined and, and, and sturdy and absolute? How is that possible? Doesn't that sound contradictory? Doesn't that sound like tension to you? Do you feel the tension rising? Let's start with the God of the tabernacle, the God of the tent. This is God at God's most free. This is a God who can pick up and move. This is a God who doesn't say, you know what, this is where I'm going to stay. This is a God who follows us into the wilderness, into our harshest life experiences, This is a God who's free to move with God's people. No specific spot is God's home. No one gets to define this is where God's going to live. God lives with us. This reminds me of something that Jesus taught about. Jesus is a free God. Jesus teaches his disciples and people listening about how God is kind of like a shepherd with a hundred sheep. You heard this story before? We sang about it, actually, in one of our songs, one of the lyrics. He said, God's like a, hundred, like a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and 99 of them are safe in the pen. Now, I don't know about you. Did you ever get a 99 on a test? That felt pretty good. Were you crying over the one point? I hope not. If you were, we can meet and talk. I can counsel you or something. But that, I mean, 99 is pretty good out of 100 sheep. I'd be saying, I'm a pretty good shepherd. I got 99 sheep out of 100 in this pen. But God's not like me. God looks at these 100 sheep, or these 99 sheep, and he says, you know what? There's one missing. And I can't go to sleep tonight because I got a sheep that's not in its pen. What does the shepherd do? Jesus says the shepherd goes out all over the countryside, all over the hillsides, all over God's creation, looking for this one lost sheep. I mean, that's a free God. That's a God who's willing to go wherever you are. That's a God who's willing to go to any height or any depth. That's a God who's willing to meet you in the wilderness, who's willing to meet you in the lost places, who's not scared of getting lost himself. Because why? Because everywhere is God's home. I need a free God in my life. Amen? I need a God who I can trust. When I screw up, because I don't know if you know this, I'm not perfect. There might be news. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. When I screw up, I need to know that when I screw up, I can trust that, you know what, I am so far from where I need to be, but I know God's going to find me. I know that's true. Not much of my life might be true in that moment, but I know that's true. I need a God that I can trust. We'll look at the 99 and say, but Scott's missing. I need to go get him. Do you need a God like that in your life? Do you need a God that you can trust no matter where you end up in the wilderness, whether you are the sweetest little sheep prancing over into some weird lost place? God says, let me go get him. Let me go get him. Let me go get him. 
And maybe this sounds like an image of God that you really like. In fact, maybe you're sitting there going, you know, Scott, I'm kind of good right here. Can we just stop at free God? I like free God. I do too. But I think if free God, if, if the one lost sheep image of God is the only image we've got, if that's all who God is, then I think we lose something. And to explain why, I want to talk about my daughter for a second. I've got a two-year-old at home who's going on 35, and um, she's got attitude, (laughs) which is awesome. And her favorite food in the world to eat is potato chips. I know, I'm a terrible parent. Let my child eat potato chips. Keep it to yourself, okay? Um, Terrible parents, unite. Yeah, anybody? Yeah, yeah. We watch y'all when we eat potato chips at our house. Um, so she loves eating potato chips. Anytime I'm eating chips, she'll come to me and go, Dada, bip, please. She can't say chip. You know, bip, please. And I'll say, Andy, have you had any chips today? She'd look at me and go, no. So why, why don't you go ask your mom if you can have some potato chips? Right? I do that one so that mom can be the bad guy. Um, no, really because I, I figure she's had potato chips already that day, and I, and I want her to go and ask Reagan so I can know if, She's actually had potato chips. So I, I see her scamper off to the master bedroom. Then I hear her scamper back. I don't hear what was said. Dada, bit peas. I said, really? Mama said you could have a, a potato chip? She goes, mm-hmm. I said, hey, Reagan. <laughs> yeah. Hey, did, Reagan, did Andy ask you if she could have a potato chip? She goes, no. <laughs> I said, Andy. She goes, Sorry, Dada, bit peas. <laughs> and she gets a potato chip because I can't discipline my own child because she's too cute. Have you ever had a relationship with God kind of like the relationship my daughter has with my wife at times? Where you've got a question on your heart, but you know what you want the answer to be? And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly the answer that God gives. 100% of the time. <laughs> Have you ever had a relationship with God where God, you come to God with some really pressing issue on your heart and there's this decision you've got to make and you think you have the right idea, you think you've got it figured out and you say, you know, I'm going to pray about this. We love to say that. I'm going to pray about this. And you go and you pray about this. And wouldn't you know that you hear the voice of God in your ear going, you are 100% right all the time. You're so smart. I've had that relationship with God. Have you? Amen? Am I the only one? Am I the only one that comes to God and says, bit please? Did you ask? Mm-hmm. God said yes. Wouldn't you know it? I think sometimes we love to turn God into whatever we think the answer should be. How often does God just reflect your preconceived notions, beliefs, ideas, behaviors, whatever it is? How easy it is to have a relationship with God that never challenges us and only supports us. How easy it is to have a relationship with a God who we know will not just always follow us to where we are, but will stay there with us too and set up shop. Hey, I'm over here. Guess what? God's on my side. We're just saying if God is, you know, God is for us, not against us. And some people love to go, well, God is for me. Who can be against me? I'm like, well, sometimes God is for you, but also thinks you're a nubbin head. So there's times when we need to wake up and realize that a relationship with a living God is not all pats on the back and not all, yeah, you go get him and oh, you're 100% right. But sometimes God goes, whoa, slow down. Sheep, you are lost. Does the, does the shepherd go and find the sheep and then say, hey, flock, come over here. We're going we're gonna to all 99 of you all come over. No, he doesn't do that. He picks up the sheep and brings them back into the pen. 
And we're sitting here, sheep lost in the woods, going, maybe the sheep will find me. Or maybe God already did, and God said, you're off the beaten path. You're out of territory. You're out of line. You're out of the pen. Maybe God's challenged you on something you think. Maybe God's challenged you on something that you want to do. Maybe God's challenged you in a decision that you think you have before you, and you're just not willing to hear it because you want God to be on your side, and you want God to be exactly where you are. And guess what, folks? The Christian faith is full of challenges. It is. It'd be much easier for me to stand up here and tell you what you want to hear, which is, you're right, but that's not the case. It's not the case for me, and it's not the case for you. Think about your faith. When is the last time that God actually made you think differently about something than you already did? When's the last time your Christian faith challenged you to change your beliefs? (laughs) Or do we just keep reading the Bible until we find the scripture that supports what we think? So a fully free God is a great thing, but if God is only free, if God is only exactly where we are 100% of the time, my friends, what we're going to end up with is 8 billion different Christian churches, and each of us will have our own, and it'll be awful, awful. I don't want to go to church by myself. I'm a miserable person. I don't want to sit in a room by myself every day. I need to come to church and see good Christians so I can try to be one, right? I need that in my life. I need to be around people that challenge me to think differently and act differently. We don't just need God to be free. We need God to be more. So let's talk about God being fixed. Let's talk about God being in the temple, this old stone building, this place that's going to give a nation an identity. It's going to give them peace of mind. It's going to give them security. And stones, guys, I'll tell you, this stone building might not sound much to y'all. We live in America. We live in Dallas, like one of the newest big cities in America, historically speaking, right? The oldest building in the city is from like the 60s, right? Like we don't don't understand old stone buildings around here. Um, Old stones are important in some parts of the world. If you go to Israel, you can see the western wall, this temple they're talking about. You can see the foundation that it sat upon. Those stones are still there. Like thousands of years later, and people go to these stones, and they pray over these stones, and they kiss these stones, and their faith is in these stones. And when you walk up to these stones, you feel something. There's something in you that just, you get goosebumps. You you feel those fuzzies. You feel there's something sacred about this place. It's not just stones. There's something different about them. You can feel just the magnified presence of God. So these stones are important that we talk about. We shouldn't dismiss the fact that it's this stone building and say, who cares about an old building? And this was a building born out of commitment. He says, follow my commandments, God says to Solomon. Follow my commandments, follow my statutes, follow my ordinances, and I'll build you this temple. It's born out of this commitment, this covenant. All this makes me think about another story that Jesus told to his followers, very different from the one lost sheep. It's a story about a a man with two sons. Many of you have heard this one before. The younger son comes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance today. Which doesn't sound like a big deal, except in those days, he was basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could go ahead and get your money now. So family drama, we'll say, at the least. Father is a gracious dad, so he gives his son his part of the inheritance. The son goes off, hits the casinos, he goes off, parties it up, lives this crazy opulent life, wastes it all in a short amount of time, and ends up working for a pig farmer 
living with the pigs and eating the pig slop. When Jesus is telling this at the time, that's the lowest thing you could imagine as a Jewish person in Jesus' day. Someone who worked with pigs, lived with pigs, and ate with pigs. Ugh. One day this guy's looking at his life, and he starts to feel really low. He starts to realize he's pretty much hit rock bottom. He thinks about home for a second. He thinks about this place that he came from. This place that he knows inside there's a really good father, a gracious father, a loving father. And he thinks, maybe I should go back. Maybe I should get up and go back. And maybe, maybe I can find that love and that grace again. So he does. He gets up. He doesn't even clean himself. He comes, he's filthy. I mean, he's, he's been living and eating with pigs for God knows how long. He walks up, and as soon as his father can see him down the road, his father's standing at the gate to their family land. As soon as he sees him down the road, he runs after him. He meets him out there, gives him the biggest bear hug. He says, my son has returned. Come in, come in. We've got to throw you a party. Let me, let me pull a, a chair out and get you a seat at the table. Let me get you dressed. Let me, let me get you here for a feast. And he tells the older brother, older brother, let's, let's get this party together. And they start to party. And the younger son's got a seat at the table again. And what's the older brother doing? He's standing out to the side, looking at the table, looking at the party. And he hates it. He hates it. I mean, who hates a party? I mean, those of us who are antisocial, a little bit. But really, who hates a party? He can't stand it. Why? His father comes out to talk to him. Son, what is going on? He says, how can you be doing this? How can you be extending this kind of grace to not just his brother? He says, this son of yours. Like, he doesn't even see him as a brother anymore. He doesn't see him as as family. He says, how can you extend this kind of love and this kind of grace to this son of yours when all I see is disgusting? All I see is filth. All I see is sin. And here you are pulling a seat up at the table for him. How how can you do that? Especially when I've been good. I followed the rules. I played by the book. I stayed here and I farmed and I ranched. I did everything you asked me to. And what, now he gets to come back and receive grace? What is that? It's easy to to think the big brother is a big jerk, but how many times have we been the big brother in church? I can tell you right now, we got churches full of big brothers. I've been the big brother. How many of you have played the game? And you look at people that don't, and you go, I mean, think about this for a second. You you die and you go up to heaven. I'm assuming you're all good people. And uh, you die and go up to heaven. Standing by the pearly gates. God's standing there, generous, gracious Father. And you see someone walking up. I don't know who it is for you, but there's someone walking up, and you think to yourself, he better not run out and hug them. (laughs) Be honest, crosswalk. There's somebody you know is walking up, and you're thinking, dadgummit, how did they get a seat at the table? Because all you see is filth, and all you see is sin. I can't help but think of the prodigal son. Now, on the, here, there's two things in this story that, that blow my mind. Number one is, is, did you notice how God changes how God acts between the one lost sheep and the prodigal son? One lost sheep, God goes out and finds the sheep wherever it is. Prodigal son, God stays put, right? God's not going into the pig pit. Now, I think God can, but in this story, the father stays put at the estate. Why? Because when the son comes home, he needs to meet God there. 
Is there a sacred space to you that when you go home, you know that God's going to be there? Maybe that space is this room. Maybe it's the baptismal font, if you were baptized in our, in our baptismal font. Maybe that space is a family home. Maybe it's a friend's apartment. Maybe it's a coffee shop or a restaurant or a bar. I don't know. There's some sacred space that when you go there, you know that you'll be met with love and grace and forgiveness and everything that God is about. Sometimes we don't need God to go out and find us. Sometimes we need God to be where we trust God is going to be. Can you imagine the son came back and his dad wasn't there? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes we need God to be fixed. We need him in the stone building. We need him in the family home. We need him in that spot so that when we get to the gate, we can trust that we're going to get a hug, that he won't be off on some trip finding some sheep. We need God to be where he's at. But guess what? There's a problem with fixed God, too. The problem is, God tells Solomon, build this building, build it out of respect for my commandments and my statutes and my ordinances. And, and sometimes, folks, I think that we love this fixed God so much that we forget it's not about the commandments and the statutes and the ordinances, is it? That's not why God's spirit resides in the temple. It's not like God's there as long as we're good. It's not like God's waiting for us to screw up so he can leave. But we got people in the church, and we've all been in this position where we begin to think that faith, the Christian faith, a living relationship with a living God is actually about commandments and ordinances and statutes. And we start to look a whole lot like an older brother, don't we? And we start to despise people that get a seat at the table out of grace and out of love. Why? Because we played by the rules. And that's the pitfall of Worshiping only a fixed God is that we forget it's not just about what we do. It's not just about following rules. It's not just about covenants. Because here's the, real, the really painful part. If this faith is all about commandments and statutes and covenants, guess what? None of us measure up. None of us measure up. Zero. None of us measure up. And you might think, but Scott, I'm not a racist. I don't care. You don't measure up. But Scott, I'm not a homophobe. I don't care. You don't measure up. But Scott, I'm not this, I'm not that. I, I don't care, big brother. You don't measure up. And it might feel good to feel superior, but you don't measure up. The ground at the foot of the cross, as Stan Copeland said in our 930 service, the ground at the foot of the cross is what? Level. It is even, right? And this is the pitfall of the fixed God, is that we begin to think, you know what, I measure up. No, you don't. No, you don't. If we only desire a fixed God, the table will never be small enough. Amen? Amen? Our faith has got to be about more than just ordinances and commandments. So what do we do with this? If God is fixed, if God is free, but God is not just one or the other, how do we hold these things in tension? And why do I think that this tension is actually a good thing, even a beautiful thing that can make music? It's because I actually believe that God needs to be both or else we're only getting a half a picture of God. I need to trust that when I go off like a boneheaded sheep, God is going to find my sorry little rumpus and bring me back into the pen. Amen? And I need to trust that when I go and lay with the pigs, that I can get up and still be filthy and still walk into this place and God will meet me with an open hug. Amen? Sometimes I, got, I need God to be where I am and sometimes I need God to be where God is. I need a God who can be both things at once. And the problem in our denomination right now is when we look at cutting these strings, 
We will look at cutting these strings because of some symptoms like who gets married and who gets ordained. We get something right in the moment and we get a lot of things wrong down the road. Because on one side of this discussion, we've got a lot of people who say, you know what, tabernacle God is the way to go. And on another side of this discussion, we've got a lot of people saying, you know what, God in the temple is the way to go. And I'm standing here in the middle going, why not both? Why do we got to pick? Why can't God be where I am and where God is at the same time? I thought we believed in God. Or do we have to start boxing God in with a tent or with a temple? So maybe you still don't care about any of this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you don't. But I do because I think this is meaningful stuff. It goes to the core of what we think about God and what we think about Jesus and what we think about faith. And we've got to realize that we've got a faith that challenges us. We've got a faith that asks us to be in family relationships with people that we don't agree with. And when I say family, I mean Christian family. You've got brothers and sisters in the room. Look at your brothers and sisters. Look at them right now and say, I disagree with you. Say it louder. I disagree with you. I'm serious, y'all. We think that we're all of one mind. That ain't true. I know y'all. I watch your Facebook posts. Y'all don't disagree about nothing. Or y'all don't agree about anything, man. About anything. About anything. And that's okay. Because this is the church that God's called us to. This is the family that God's invited us into. And if we cut the strings right now, there's no more pain and there's no more tension. And we all get to be right for a day. And guess what? It gets a whole lot quieter in the world too. And we don't need that. The world doesn't need another organization that doesn't know how to stay together. The world doesn't need another family to get a divorce. The world doesn't need another gospel-oriented church to forget its gospel-oriented nature and start to focus on issues that divide us. And rather, it needs us to focus on a cross and a gospel message that unites us in the midst of our differences. If we get real about that, if we get real about the fact that we are all here at Lover's Lane because of nothing but what? Jesus. If you're here out of political motivation, if you're here hoping that we're going to agree with you 100% of the time, if you're here because you think this is a Democrat church or a Republican church or a liberal church or a progressive church or a conservative church or a, I don't something in the middle of whatever church, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. This church is about nothing but Jesus. Amen? That is why we stay together. That is why we're able to worship in one place with people from Liberia and people from Preston Hollow and people from Uptown. That is why we can gather together and love Jesus together because it's not about anything else. Because we trust in a God who is both fixed and free. And you know what else we trust in? That we are not God. Y'all with me? I think I've said enough, Dee Dee. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, God of the temple and of the tabernacle, God who is in the places we cannot expect and exactly where we know to find you. God who meets us in the depths of our human experience and lifts us out. God who climbs to the mountaintop with us and rejoices right beside God who is in the pig pen and in the hillside and in church. God who is working in every one of our hearts to rid us of division and hatred. God who asks us not to unite together simply because we think alike, but because we love 
alike. We call upon you, God, this morning to remind us what the Christian faith is really about. It's not about being right. It's not about winning the day. It's about winning eternity. It's about finding love in our hearts with, for people with whom we deeply disagree. It's about standing for justice and equality and inclusion. And it's also about uplifting commitment and sacrifice and covenant. It's about trusting in each other's relationship with you. It's about letting everything other than the cross fade away on Sunday mornings. It's about waking up on Monday and letting the cross propel us into our week. It's not about worshiping ideologies or worshiping opinions or worshiping politics. It's about worshiping you. God, we're so thankful. We're so thankful to have a God who is fixed and free. A God who stands for eternal truths. A God who gives us the gift of scripture that is God-breathed. But also a God who says, I'm alive and my word is alive and your faith had better be alive too. God, draw us near to each other this morning. Give us the strength to know that no matter what happens in the next year or the next two years or the next five years or the next ten, that this church has been and will be and always will be about loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. And we don't let anything get in the way of that. All of this we pray in your Son's holy precious and resurrected name, and we say, amen.